Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Today is going to be a real treat for you. We're going to be on the show with Vina Jetty, and she owns 3,000 units valued at $600 million. She is performing at a super high level. So you're going to be a fly on the wall where Garrett and I kind of jam with her about what it's like to, you know, the scale. And it's going to be really cool today. Now, just a reminder, we actually have tickets for Dealmaker Live. June 2nd through 4th in Dallas. It's our annual event. And right now we're in super, super early bird pricing. Tickets are only $297. And uh, we're going to have a room full of amazing, amazing speakers. And there's a good chance that Vina is going to be there as well. So check that out at dealmakerliveevent.com. Get there right now because the tickets are super, super affordable and they're going to go up from here. So check that out. I want to give a shout out to a, a reviewer on iTunes for the podcast, Ali San Safran. He says, Michael does a great job, and Garrett, of course, in making us think about what kind of life we want to live and how to do it via a real estate, a must for all. So thank you, Ali, for, for that review. I really appreciate that. And with that, I want to bring on our co-host, Garrett. What's going on? What's going on, Michael? We're going to talk a lot about uh, about scaling here on this show, and uh, this is really important. And I know from my own story that I never really thought about scaling. And we just had our dealmaker boot camp in Orlando where we kind of simulate a first deal. And we had a lot of new investors and people even who have done one or two deals. And when you sit them down and you say, hey, how are you going to scale? They're like, well, I'm just going to do another deal like I did the last one. Yeah, but how are you going to scale? And they're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, right? And it was a similar thing for 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 us as well. You know, we kind of do just what we did before, just add another deal, and then all of a sudden we create problems and we fix these problems versus being more proactive. And now now we know this, but gosh, it surely would have been great four years ago to just pay a lot more attention to scaling. So what are some of the things and issues that we had to, you know, that people should think think about when they think of scaling proactively versus firefighting reactively? Yeah. When you, so you guys, you want to realize that when you're buying an apartment complex, it's a business. You're buying a business. That's right. You buy another apartment complex, that's a separate business. So you have, and then they have similarities in between them. Now you're going to, you can force scale by just buying more property. And what that does is it's going to allow you more room, more bandwidth to be able to make hires. But even after you buy your first deal, you can think in advance, hey, if I buy another one, what is that going to look like? Not just from a numbers perspective, but on an operations perspective, how am I going to, what processes will I need if it, this is working this way to do the next one and, and get ahead of it? That way, when you go and do the next deal, you're actually in a good position to run it. Maybe it's a maintenance person that you need that you're sharing with other owners inside of your property management company, your first deal. Okay, well, you're adding a second deal. Maybe you can afford one for both instead of having to share them with other owners. So things like that, that you can think about in your processes and procedures that you want to implement earlier than later so that you're not just fighting fires when you get into the next deal. Yeah, I think the biggest thought I want to introduce here is the idea of scaling in general. Okay, just thinking about scaling and creating a scaling plan. And Garrett, you mentioned a few things here, but what will the company look like one year in the future, three years in the future? What are the, how many deals are you doing? What size? What are the acquisition fees coming in? What are the asset management fees coming in? What is money is coming in? And then therefore, how should you spend that money? Which people should you hire? In what order? What's the org chart going to look like? What are you going to spend on marketing? What are you going to spend on software? These are all things that people don't think about until, you know, basically, 
obviously they're firefighting. And Vina mentions these things, and we struggled with a lot of those same things around operations. We're like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have done this three years ago, and now it's going to be a real pain, and it's holding us back, literally holding us back from getting another deal, holding us back from raising another $10 million, only because we were not proactive about that. So we're going to talk about there on, on the show uh, with Vina Jetty, and she's a founding partner of Vive Funds. You know, she's got about 3,000 units. She's managed uh, $600 million of real estate, substantially larger than us, Garrett, though we're catching up to her. But she is performing at a super high level. She's also super down to earth. She's a speaker, panelist, and uh, she's got a huge heart for giving back. Really like her. Let's Let's get this interview here and see what it's like to perform at the next level. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. you. Vina, welcome to the show today. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. It's been a long time. I don't know why it's taking us for this long to, to get you on the show, but <laughs> podcast is a great way to catch up, and that's what we want to do. So, so give us a little background on your on yourself and kind of what brought you to this point. Yeah, so I uh, have rolled out a company called Vive Funds. I, you know, rolled it out mid COVID because that was really the best time to make a drastic life change. Was right in the middle of a global pandemic, but it served us really well. We've bought over two hundred and fifty million dollars worth of assets in the Atlanta market. And we focus on class B value add multifamily in Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona. Also Hawaii and Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are you guys are in <laughs> you guys Why not? Are, you guys are in a in a in a few in a few markets. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, how did you get how did you get started with this stuff? I mean, obviously you've been doing this for a little while, but how did you how did you get into it? Yeah. So I you know, I took the shortcut in. I totally cheated because my parents are, my mom is a very successful real estate investor. So I grew up in this world. I have been around it my whole entire life. Probably before I could even like walk, I was at closings and touring assets. So that's cool. You know, it strikes me when I read the, the Donald Trump book, uh, The Art of the Deal. He yeah. obviously also grew up with a family. His dad was a real estate investor. And so that gave him a leg up, of course. But the man thought at a much higher level than than his father did. Are you thinking at a higher level than your your parents as well? Uh, you know, I don't know if I would say that. My mom is like a very smart person. I've learned a lot from her. I think the difference is they were immigrants to this country. They came here with nothing. They came here with no credit, no safety net. Whereas I had a lot of latitude to take on significant risk that I was like, all right, well, if I lose everything, we'll move back home or my parents will pay the mortgage. You know, like I had a pretty big safety net to be able to take on more significant risks. So I think I just can look at scale a little bit different. And, you know, my kids, I want them to be able to take on even more risk than I could because they don't have to worry about, you know, what happens if they fail. Well, let me let me challenge you about that because I, I have a few friends who came from parents from immigrants and, and, and I, I see the opposite. Where the parent was, you know, the entrepreneur, and they, you know, came with, you know, two bucks in their in their pocket, and were worked their butt off, and you know, sweat, you know, grit, and then of course became very successful. And they don't want their children to have that kind of life. They're like, oh, I want them to better have a better life, just like that. And sometimes, of course, you know, money corrupts, right? It makes you lazy. And what what is giving you the drive to, you know, do what you're doing? 
Yeah. So my parents are totally that immigrant story. You know, we had to hear every week at the dinner table about how they came with $26 in their pocket and everything is self-made. And they walked both ways uphill in a foot of snow in India to school. Of course. Barefoot. barefoot. We grew up with that too. And, you know, they did they understood the power of leverage and they understood the power of making smart investment decisions, which I think really gave me a foundation. As far as money corrupting, you know, my parents never indulged us. We always were taught a very solid work ethic from a young age. And my parents always made it a point to show us that not everybody lives the life that we live, even in middle-class America, not everybody lives this life. And so they were always very purposeful in instilling those values and those messages in us. And, you know, I'm trying to do the same with my daughters too. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, I have four kids as well. And you try to do what's best for your kids. And sometimes you're like, ah, you just want to do it for them. You just want to buy it for them, you know? And it's tough, right? Because you want to spoil your kids, but then again, you don't. Yeah, no, I mean, you're exactly right. And, you know, also now I'm in a point where I'm like, I don't want to do certain things that aren't, nicer. So by nature, they're my kids. I can't like leave them behind. I can't put them, they're two and a half. I can't put them in coach and flying business class. Right. So I'm like, you know, I'm trying to figure out that balance and that struggle is real. Well, I think the work ethic is super important. I think that's the, the, the common thread of anyone who's successful, real estate or otherwise, is the work ethic. And I think that's so important. How do we instill that in our in our kids? And your parents pulled it off uh, with you in, in some way. And, <laughs> you know, and uh, so that's pretty cool. And, and now how many units do you guys, what is the size of your portfolio right now? So we've transacted on my total portfolio, just over 600 million. So somewhere north of 3,000 units. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Give us a sense for the team. Like what's, what's the makeup of the team? Because it's, it's probably not just you at this point. Yeah, no, it's not. I, I wish I could take all the credit for what we've done, but I really would be doing a disservice to our awesome teams that are doing everything behind the scenes. So at the partnership level, it's myself and actually my sister is a partner in our company too. So she's also followed the footsteps of my mom. And then we have our, you know, we have our third party teams, which are also really critical. And I don't know that we'll ever pull them on board internally. It probably doesn't really make a lot of sense, but that's like our tax strategist, our attorneys, our securities attorney, very, very, very important. So we utilize those teams pretty heavily. We have our administrative coordinator. We have our asset managers. We have underwriters. So our team is fairly extensive at this point. We have someone that kind of heads up each little section, and then we focus more on the higher level and the strategic piece of the business at this point. Well, let's talk, let's talk about that because as we scale, we're always asking the questions, how should we spend our time, right, Garrett? I mean, the three partners are like, you know, should we be in the weeds? Sometimes we need to be in the weeds, but we really want to be more in a strategy level. So you guys have actually put a lot of uh, teams in place to handle some of these things. So, so how do you and the partners spend their time? What is the, the most valuable way you can spend your time right now? For me, it's on strategy around acquisitions or capital and legal structure. Those are, I think, the big three. I, and I spend a lot of time in those because I enjoy those the most, if I'm being totally honest. like Those are my favorite parts of the business. I do still a lot of invest, take a lot of investor-facing calls. You know, All my investors, like they have my cell phone number. They text me. They call me. And it's hard to scale with that, but it's something that I think has really been important to our business. So, Vina, you've from what I know about you, you've, you've really kind of gone to the highest level as far as capital raising goes. And not a lot of people get to the level that you've been able to achieve 
What do you attribute to that? And what do you think is really the makeup of, of your reason for, for going to that level? Because I know there's a ton of people listening that are like, man, if only I could raise you know more money, you figured something out. Yeah. So I hope I'm not at the highest level because that means that I'm like just done. I can just walk away right now. A Grant Cardone is at the highest level. Okay. okay. I, I want to be Grant when I grow up. <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely raising capital. Well, and he switched to like a Reg A raise now, so he's taking in yeah. smaller investors, and he's really catering to people that wouldn't otherwise have access to these opportunities. So, with that being said, I think what there's a couple of things that have been really important and really instrumental to us having the success that we've had with raising capital. One is we are very investor focused. Every single decision we make in the portfolio, whether it's updating the website to making monthly distributions to sending out content every single decision is made with how does this affect the investor and how does it affect their experience with us so we really strive for that white glove experience secondly we pay a lot of attention to our retention rate of investors so i want to see investors that are really here to build a long-term relationship with us they reinvest with us about 80 to 90 percent at any given time of my investors are in two or more deals with me and that's very important to me and then of course I know we're doing something right when I start seeing the referrals of friends and family coming into our investor database. That's interesting. So you just said reinvestment and then you've launched a fund. And from what I've heard, it's more difficult to get investors into a fund to reinvest. So how are you guys overcoming that? Yeah, so we it definitely is challenging. And the thing about funds and diversified asset funds, like we have Rev Fund One is what we launched. It's a $100 million value add fund. The challenge that you have is there's a lot of roads that lead to Rome and there's no necessarily clear path that's like, this is hands down the best way to do this. So you kind of have to like pick and choose what you think your investors will do. And so for us, we have investors that reinvest through the fund, but we also offer direct offerings on our assets. So it's not an either or. A lot of times it's a both. And the investors that invest into our fund or re-up, they're the ones that want diversification across their investments. They want the set it and forget it. They don't want to be picking and choosing and evaluating every deal. They're like, Vina, I know I'm going to invest X amount of dollars with you. I'm going to put it in every quarter, every six months, every year, whatever that is for them. And so they just continue to reinvest and make increase their investments. And also, when they're seeing returns and we're delivering, it's a lot easier for them to make that decision. Now, why are you giving two options to investors? That's interesting. I mean, sometimes, you know, you don't want to give two people too many options. Yeah, it's definitely been like an interesting dynamic. And one thing I did not at all expect was having a lot of our investors that said, oh my gosh, I love this asset, Waterstone. I want to invest into that. But I also want to be in Rev Fund because I want to have the diversification. So they are actually putting, you know, one investment here and then another investment there. I totally did not expect that. But we gave people options because it, Rev Fund was really born out of demand from our investors. They wanted a way to set it, forget it, know how much they were going to invest on a yearly basis into our deals, and also be able to be diversified across multiple assets. They didn't want the risk of just any one asset. Yeah, that's that's right. So. Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing with the investors to achieve some of the goals you mentioned, the retention, the reinvestment, the referrals, the white glove treatment. What are you doing with your investors? Like, What are some of the best practices that you're, that you're following? So the biggest tip I have for anybody trying to raise capital effectively and efficiently is 
One, raise your capital when you don't have a deal on the table. So when you're in between deals is the best time for you to raise capital. I know it sounds counterintuitive because you're like, I don't have anything to pitch them. But you're not. What you're doing is you are going through who you are as sponsors, your general strategy, your business plan, making sure they understand and can vet you so that by the time you do have a deal, all they're doing is they're vetting the exact opportunity in front of them. Because you know we have to raise $30 million in 42 days. I cannot go and take individual investor calls and make those calls in the course of that 42 days and still be funded. So when I don't have a deal on the table is when I start raising our capital. Hey, I want to tell you about our mentoring program because I'm just excited at what our students' results are. We have students routinely do their first deal because they're working with a full-time syndicator. And that mentor is helping them do their first deal faster. That first deal is a lot bigger than if they did it without a mentor. And they avoid some of the biggest mistakes that can simply make you want to quit out of the business. So if that's interesting to you, if you value mentorship, check out our mentoring programs at themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. You can schedule a call with us and see if mentoring is right for you. And uh, we look forward to having a conversation. You said you're raising $30 million in 42 days. Well, what kind of minimums are you bringing? What is your strategy? Because that's a lot of people. If you have a low minimum, obviously, are you raising that higher? You know, Talk to us a little bit about the strategy to get to that kind of a, a level of raise going through just high net worths. Yeah. So we have a lot of family offices and funds that invest into our deals. So they're bringing you know, a seven-figure check. Also, us as the sponsors, our GP team is the largest LP into our deals in general. So we take out a huge chunk before the deal even goes to the public or to our investors. So that's one. And then we also are seeing check sizes that are have been gradually increasing. So our average investment is a little under 200000 at this point. Our minimums on our deals are... 50,000 in rev fund for class B shares. And then any of our direct investments are general, and it's deal dependent, right? But our general minimum is about 100,000 for the class B shares. Our average investment is about $166,390. Wow, you, you pulled up the exact amount. Thank you for yes. that. <laughs> we're, I think we're trying to inch our way up towards that. But we, yeah, we recently switched to uh, 100K men's, and that's been super helpful for us to kind of target those higher numbers. And hit them. We actually, yeah, we just launched one and it was done in a day and it was, you know, $12 million raise. It's definitely helpful. But I'm I'm curious. So you so you kind of hit the bottom of the the raise with some some bigger funds. Do you do anything with like 1031 exchanges? Is that a part of your plan? We do um when the business plan allows for us to do it. It's not something that we strategically target, but as an example, we're going to be exiting a deal that we've been in for less than 18 months this year. And when we exit that deal, it's going to be a significant return to investors. Like I don't know how much just yet because we're still negotiating it, but it'll probably be like one. 7x multiplier on the equity. And so a lot of investors are going to be very happy with that return, but they're also going to want a way to defer taxes or make it more tax efficient. So in that case, you know, we'll roll forward in a 1031 and then investors that want to stay in can stay in. Um, and so in that way, we would utilize the 1031. In general, if someone approaches us and asks to be in a 1031 with our assets, it's a little bit tougher because the timing really has to line up. And quite honestly, unless the 
amount is high enough, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense financially or administratively or legally to go through all the hoops that are required for the tick structure that you need. Um, so we definitely do it on our own assets, but on other funds, uh, it's, it, the bar is a little bit higher for us to actually do that. And the timing has to be perfect because it has to be before we start going through the financing process. You mentioned family funds and private equity as well. And I've heard some some mixed reviews about starting to work with those kinds of investment partners as well. And kind of flaky, not committed, pulling out the last second. How have you found your experience to be and what is your advice of getting more involved in, in, in the, with the institutional investors? Generally speaking, like family offices, they're all relationship-based. And I'll tell you, most of them at this point have found us. We don't necessarily go to find them. So I think it's a little bit different when you're, you know, you're the one that they're seeking out versus the other way around. So that's one. I will say that there are investors that pull out in the last minute as well. And I think it's at a minimum generally for our deals because our deals typically get overfunded so quickly that we go to the next person on the wait list. It's not, you know, it's not a huge deal for us or, you know, we'll invest more capital into our deals if we need to. There's no issue with us doing that. Yeah. So, so your advice is you can go get in there, but don't count on them. You know, always be able to, to have a backup yeah. for them. Number one. Now you got your strategic partner hat on. You said uh, raising capital and deal flow. Uh, you think about those things a lot. So is there anything that you want to change or achieve over the next year or so that might affect the way you guys raise capital? As far as affecting how we raise capital, one, we have like a big focus this year on, I'm actually getting ready to rebrand and roll out with like a fresh, clean look, clean brand, clean investor experience. So that's one. Two, we are looking at adding some technology that'll make the investment process a little bit smoother. We want to decrease friction, right? And so uh, one of the things we do for our investors that I think has really been the white glove services. Sometimes I have investors that are, you know, 70 or 75 years old. They don't know how to use DocuSign or they're not comfortable with going and filling out forms. So our team will actually get on a phone call with them. We'll pre-fill everything. All they have to do is go in and click to sign so that their documents are done correctly. And, you know, they're protected. We're protected because that's what the documents are for. So I think those are things that we're focusing on for this year. Also, I've been focusing on my social media. I don't know if you've noticed, but I hired somebody who now does all my social media and she's been doing a phenomenal job getting content created. So, um, you know, those are all things that we're looking at. What about your, like the top of your funnel? What's been working for you there? And to go with that, are you more inclined to do 506Cs or 506Bs with your deals? Yeah. So we do 506C deals. We have not done a 506B offering um, at Vive at all. And I don't know that we will in the near future. Top of my funnel. So I'm actually like the worst person to ask about this because I do not have like this clear cut path. Like really my investors are, they're just repeat investors. They're loyal investors. They increase their investments with us and then they refer friends and family. So that's really how the majority of our investors are in our deals. But I mean, I think theoretically, I would like to have a top of funnel. I just don't. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll figure that out. You can already raise $30 million in 42 days without any kind of marketing, Vina. Can you imagine <laughs> if you put a little fuel in the fire, but actually building no. a platform? Oh my gosh. 
<laughs> I'm going to have to follow your lead on that because you're I, much better yeah, at that. Yeah, I, I had this conversation with Brian Burke. I give him a, a, a hard yeah. time about this all the time. And he goes, yeah, but Michael, I, I don't have a problem raising money. So why should yeah. I Why should I build a platform? And I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. What problem are we solving if I can raise $100 million? You know, it's a good, it's a good exactly. point. Exactly. You know, so that's pretty cool. What's your biggest challenge right now? Oh gosh, I really have a hard time letting go of the investor touch point. I because I enjoy that part of the business. I want to talk to our investors. I want to, you know, answer their questions, especially when they're coming in. And I know that at some point it's probably not that scalable, and I probably need to start bringing someone on board to kind of help at least with the intake process or streamline it a little bit, which we haven't yet. So that's probably the hardest part about what we're doing is juggling that time and it just has so much importance to the business that I can't move away from it yet. All right. So that's one, letting go of the investor calls. What else? I think getting new technology implemented at the pace that I would like to implement it. Because what I found is before I used to try to find like the one-stop shop that can do everything in the software. And I've realized that it's really not a great way to implement technology into the business because there are some companies that are just much better at certain things than other areas of their business offerings. And so now we have kind of started finding the pieces and putting it together, but there's a lot more integration that has to happen. You know, DocuSign has to speak to the email server, which has to speak to Dropbox and it's like all crazy. So um, I think that's the next hardest thing. The thing is you have built a substantial business. And I think the message to everyone listening, watching this is if you're in syndication, you've done your first deal, you're about to do your first deal. You are literally embarking on a multi-million dollar business. Now, when I first got started, I did my first deal. I wasn't thinking I'm going to do a multi-million dollar business. Like, right. It didn't even occur to me. It was like, well, let's just do a deal and see where it goes. Oh, well, let's do a second deal because the first one went okay. Oh, let's do a third deal. Like, I don't know. I just care. I don't know if in your experience, but it's like, and then we do these things and then we create problems for ourselves and we solve the problems. It's like, we're always in like reactive mode. And I'm curious if you could go back to your younger self, what would you advise your yourself and your partners that maybe you should pay attention to earlier on? Invest into systems and processes out of the gate. Do not, you know, try to just roll with the punches because it's not efficient and you need that efficiency. And the more you have that process in place, the easier it's going to be to scale up. Okay. Can you be a little more specific though? So, but but here's also the, the challenge, okay? As you know, and, and we experience as well, when you're doing a live deal, right? And you're like a deal, you're, you're, the entire company is busy on due diligence, contracts, insurance, raising capital. Like it's like, boom, right? It's this giant chaos. And this lasts forever for two months or whatever the case may be. And then you close the deal you put your property manager in place and you go, Whew, all right, let's build some systems. And a week later, you get another deal and you never get around to it. Okay. You're getting way more deals than I am. Cause I'm doing like two deals a year right now. I'm not getting any deal flow. Okay. We'll talk so. about that. We'll talk about that next, but nevertheless, <laughs> so can you be more specific about, <laughs> about yeah. what you would have done differently? Yeah. So in terms of systems and processes, what I mean is like, for example, if we're talking about capital raising, right. When we have a very specific, like I have a calendar written out of on this date, day one of an LOI, these five things happen. On day three of an L or after the LOI, this happens. As soon as the PSA is done, this happens. So I put all of those timelines in place. So the whole team is operating under the same assumption. Now, of course, it changes deal to deal because it may not be 
three weeks of due diligence. It might be four weeks. And so we adjust as needed per deal, but generally speaking, everyone knows what the workflow is. We also have a very specific way that we implement our documentation, for example. So that's the other thing. Our investors, they know what to expect. They're not being thrown into the middle of a new process every time we raise capital. It's the same. And I always joke and say like, we're really boring investors. We're super vanilla because we do the same thing over and over and over and over. And that's all we do. And so our investors get comfortable with the process and maybe we enhance it a little bit by introducing, you know, DocuSign. We use power forms now to let PPMs get done faster and we send them the links and then they can go in and read it at their own leisure. They can forward it to whoever they need to, their attorneys, whatever. So that's like another system that we put in place that we didn't have in the beginning. Like just those little tweaks and it can be anything, just start setting them up right away. Don't wait until you need it because then it's much harder to put it in retroactively, like you said. So what kind of structure do you like on your deals? Like you've probably done multiple structures over the years, but what is what have you kind of landed on and um, yeah. as far as how it's set up internally? Yeah. So generally speaking, again, you know, we're boring. We rinse repeat at this point. So we have our GP side, we have our LP side of the deal. And then from a return structure standpoint, we have our pref return. We typically have class A and B shares. Our class A shares get a slightly higher pref, no upside potential. Our class B shares get a slightly lower pref, but they split in the equity. Usually it's you know 70, 30 above the split with 70% going to LPs, 30% coming to us. And then we hurdle at whatever IRR metric that's project specific and we get to 50-50 ultimately. Well, let's talk about deal flow. You said you only do one or two deals a, a year, which of course, if it's $100 million each, you know, it's still something. Uh, yeah. Would you like to do more deals uh, per year or, or is, is that an issue for you or you guys are fine with the pace you're on? I mean, I would love to have a deal every other month or every quarter that we could put our brand and our name on. We're just very particular about what we will put in our portfolio, mainly because we're pretty rigorous about our underwriting metrics and what we'll take on as an assumption versus what we actually can do. So we want to always under promise and over deliver, right? And so in that with cap rates compressing the way they have been, it has been insanely competitive to get deals. And you know, we're losing deals not by like a couple hundred thousand. We're losing $70 million deals by five million dollars. So it's not a small amount by any stretch of the imagination. And Honestly, we're very disciplined investors, so we just can't afford to pay $5 million more. I'd love to, but I cannot because I will not meet our expectations conservatively. So what are you guys doing about that? Anything or just kind of run with the punches? Yeah, we're underwriting more deals. I mean, we're mm-hmm. we're patient investors. I'm not here to do a deal just for the sake of doing a deal. I'd rather do one or two great deals than do six okay deals. What's the most earnest money you guys have put up for a deal? Curious. Um, we've put up up to two million out of the gate, and then another two million after you know twenty one days. So I mean, right now the terms are really where we're competing. And that's right. We've we're seeing the same thing. It's it's not so much on price, but on terms, and that's pretty scary as it as it is. So, yeah. <laughs> so what's the future look like for for you guys and and Vive and your company? Well, the goal is, so I did one deal in 2020 and two in 2021. So the goal is that we get three done at least, if not four. Um, We're looking at, like I said earlier, exiting some of the deals that we're in, getting a nice healthy return to our investors and to continue growing the portfolio. And we're actually re-strategizing and retargeting some of the markets that we've been 
looking at behind the scenes and trying to see if we want to bring them online for 2022. That's cool. Yeah. So, I'm curious, what, what is your definition of success look like now? And, you know, maybe versus 10 years ago when life was a little different. Oh gosh, that's a good question. So 10 years ago, I think I just wanted to get to like X amount of net worth and X amount of income. And that was like my goal for success. And I mean, I'm sure you went through this too, because I feel like anybody who has success kind of goes through this issue where it's like, okay, you achieve it. And then you're like, well, I could do this next level or I could do this next level. And so the goalpost keeps moving, right? And success has changed a lot ever since you know I had kids, because now for me, success is like hoping I don't ruin my children and I don't get to find out for like 15 more years, 16 more years. Right. And so I want to set that example for them. I want to leave that legacy for them. I want them to know that, especially as women in this space, which it's very rare to see a woman in this space at the size of assets. I want them to know that they don't have to choose between a career or a family. They can do both. Yeah, that's exactly right. Hey, Vina, how can people find out more about you, connect with you? Yeah, so you can go to my website. I have my investor portal there. It's vivefunds.com, V-I-V-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. Or, you know, I'm on all the social media as Vina Jetty, like TikTok and TikTok. Them. I'm like, I, I'm telling you, I hired a social media person and she does all of it for me. So I'm very grateful for that because I hate producing content. <laughs> I love it. Well, this has been great. You know, it's great to have you on the show here. Yeah, look forward to uh, seeing you at some of our events coming up. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I just love what Vina is doing. She's got a $100 million value add fund. You know, she's raising $30 million in 42 days. And her biggest problem is finding enough deals to put all this money in. And she doesn't even have a marketing platform. Like, it's just uh, super amazing at the portfolio she's built and the machines she's built. Yeah, I think... One of the great things I'm getting with Vina and understanding is how she handles investors and really makes her business about them and, and about their experience, which I think we try to do quite a bit as well, is just thinking through their lens. Like, hey, what are they going to want to see? How What kind of communications are they going to want? Uh, how are they going to want to be handled? She had, she had that story about the elderly person that doesn't use computers, that she figured out a way to help them. Those kind of things all matter. You know, this is not just set it and forget it. This is a working business. You work, you get in front of your investors, figure out what's going to make their experience better. And then all of a sudden your business and your network and your investor base will grow. And I thought that was really powerful. It's so important, right? So these investors are not just random names that are wiring funds. These are actual people. And when you treat them as actual people, it's going to shock and surprise them because some of these, they invest with other operators and are like, man, you guys return my phone calls. You guys will get on the phone with me if I have questions. And so now they're really impressed. And I love how Vina focuses on that. She's measuring retention and repeat investments and referrals. That's a real cool thing to measure. And that's how she has been able to grow this business, even without a very big marketing platform that she's getting into right now. Yeah. And she makes it about the repeat investor, a lot of it, but the way to get repeat investors is you have to get them in the first place, right? So you have to start with an investor and then make them a repeat investor. And, you know, a lot of that has to go with what she said about raising capital when you don't have a deal on the table. And so that was a really key point. She said, that's her biggest tip. And that's what we've, we do. We're taking fielding calls all the time, even when we don't have a live deal. So we can build that, that relationship. And then that turns when they become an investor, it's much easier to keep them as another investor in your next deal, so long as you perform and do everything you say you're going to do. 
And so it's that whole process. It's build a relationship before, get them in a deal, and then continue it forward into multiple deals in the future. That's what really matters. And I think she's she hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, if you're interested in investing passively in a real estate syndication, Garrett and I would love to have a conversation with you. Just head to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button, fill our short form, and you can schedule a call with us. We'd love to talk to you about some upcoming opportunities. And then also, if you're more in the active investor type, really start thinking about scaling. It's something that's uh, really on my mind right now. We have a lot of focus on the first deal, and that is super important. But to some degree, for many people, in my mind, the first deal is kind of a foregone conclusion because they're already doing the activity. They're following a proven system, our dealmaker blueprint, let's say, and they're just working the system, working the system. You do this long enough, they're going to get a deal. So let's start thinking about scaling. Let's start. Let's not make some of the mistakes that we made at Nighthawk and that Vina made and that basically almost every operator on the planet has done because there is no training, no best practice for how you scale a syndication business. So of course, I'm going to change all this, Garrett. And so start thinking about scaling. Start really thinking about what this business will look like if you do two, three deals a year at you know one million, two million, five million, ten million. Well, what does that business look like? Who do you have to hire? And uh, we'll start shining a light on that a little bit more down down the road. But hope you guys found that interesting to hang out with Vina Garrett and I. Catch you guys in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.